Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Okay. Here's what I want to do. I want to provide a quick follow-up to the last episode and provide yet another example of something that I think is certainly evil propaganda and just another avenue of how evil propaganda works its way into the human vernacular. And then, of course, manipulates history while manipulating these words, and then these definitions get manipulated, and then people just start saying them without even thinking about what they actually mean, and then the origins of those words and those definitions. So I want to start with the word fascist. If you were to ask people where the word fascist was created or what its definition originally was, they wouldn't know. By and large, they just would not know. In fact, what they would probably do is they'd get on their cell phone and they would get on Google and they would type in, what is the definition of a fascist? And then Google would tell them an answer and then they would believe it. And that's it. Therein lies, of course, the depth of the, of the real problem that our entire society faces. In particular, not just youth, but parents and older individuals as well. But if you were to go back into an old dictionary, and I mean from the early 19-teens, even rather 1920s, and you were to look up the word fascist, the, de- the, the original definition of the word fascist meant that you were anti-Bolshevik. You were against Bolshevism. That's, that's it. That's all that the word meant. You could add to it a little bit because there were some additions that were made in essence, to simply say that you were a nationalist, that you loved your country, you had a love of country, and you were against any kind of violent insurrection or Bolshevism and Bolshevism ideologies and tactics. That's what the term fascist means. That's it. That's the real origin of the, of the word and the definition. And it was created in 1919 by those around Benito Mussolini. Because, again, he was against Bolshevism, which, as we know, is remarkably violent and a thousand other things. Led by the Kazarian Mafia and the Soviet Union and and so on and so forth from back in the day. With that said, and Marxists, of course, but it's it's more violent than Marxism is, is is what Bolshevism is. On top of that, If you were to take that definition, of course, and thrust it into today, and then even go back in time once more, what you'll find is is that the truth is right in front of our face all of the time. So you'll notice that in the culture, for the most part, the word Bolshevism is never used. That's not an accident. People don't use the word Bolshevism because if they did, it would force people to go back and look up what is Bolshevism, and they would learn about it. And they'd realize that they've been manipulated their entire lives regarding a great many things, including about the definition and works of Bolsheviks, which are incredibly violent and arguably some of the most violent that have ever existed on the face of the planet. But they just hear the word fascist all the time. You're a fascist, you're a Nazi, you're a Nazi, you're a fascist. Those two things are not the same. They aren't the same. I've been over the word Nazi before. It's a derogatory term. That was created by a Marxist Jew, Conrad Haydn, who was a journalist. And he created the word Nazi, meaning Ignatz, in order to, of course, 
disrupt or denigrate the uh, National Socialist DAP Party of the 1930s. The point is, is that if you look currently at the group Antifa, Antifa is not a new group. Antifa is a group that has always existed. They were always funded by Bolsheviks. And what do they, of course, call themselves? What does Antifa mean? And then what do they actually refer to themselves as? They refer to themselves as anti-fascists. So if Antifa, a violent organization funded by the Kazarian Mafia to create disruption and vandalism and murder and crime and, and all of it, if they refer to themselves, even in their own name, as being anti-fascist, then that means what? It means, by definition, based on the origins of the definition, they are pro-Bolshevik. Because they are Bolsheviks. And they believe in Bolshevism. That's who your enemy is. Your enemy is not the old definition of the word fascist or the original definition of the word fascist. That's not your enemy. Your enemy is Bolshevism. Always has been. Always will be. But over the course of history and over the course of time, we have heard all of these names be thrown around and be, and be tossed on individuals throughout history as being a particular label or having, you know, again, perverted definitions and changed definitions and all of that. And it's just not true. So when you hear about Antifa, understand, yes, they are anti-fascist because fascists, based on the old term, were anti-Bolsheviks, which means Antifa are Bolsheviks. Did anybody see what Antifa did outside of Atlanta the other day? Just a couple of days ago? Huge mob of them. Videos are all over the place, but a huge mob of them throwing their fireworks and chasing down police officers. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was intense. There were a bunch of them there, and that's what they do. They create disruption. They break things. They set things on fire. This is, this is what they do. None of that is peaceful because it can't be, because by definition, they're Bolsheviks, and it's a Bolshevik tactic. So that's what they're doing, and that's what they're using. Just keep that in mind. I just wanted to, I wanted to bring that up and, and make mention of that, because that right there should prove to people how easy it is to change words, and more importantly, their definitions from the origin from which they were meant to mean. And that's a big, big deal. Because if people are just brainwashed into saying particular things, then it's, you know, it becomes a huge problem. I'll give you another example real quick. At the CPAC conference, on a yearly basis, Mark Levin, who is a rhino who is paid off by endless individuals and, you know, he's establishment nonsense. He's just this old grandpa who essentially they roll out and he rocks in a rocking chair, so to speak, and his wife always interviews him and he pats himself on the back and all of the other establishment rhinos applaud him and whatever else. Um, he offers nothing. He, he, really, he really does. He, he offers absolutely zero real objective analysis on history or, or anything else for that matter. He's right on a number of issues regarding some people from the past, but he is unwavering 
when it comes to his support for Israel, which of course was responsible for 9-11 and a thousand other criminal organizations, because again, they align themselves with either individuals who are of a Jewish bloodline or individuals, you go go far back enough, who are just full-blown Marxists. So they either have him controlled, uh, he's either blackmailed, I mean, I know he's Jewish, but you know, that's that could certainly be part of it. Um, I'm not saying that it isn't, but he was approached at CPAC by some supporters of Nick Fuentes. And it, it proves how deep the brainwashing runs in a number of different people, but supporters of Nick Fuentes came up to Mark and started asking him questions, saying, hey, what do you think about Nick Fuentes? And he turns around and he starts addressing him, and he basically says, oh, you want to know what I think about Nick Fuentes? Okay. And then he starts, he runs down this list, and he goes, well, he's an anti-Semite. He's anti-American. He's anti-Israel. He's anti-this. He's anti-that. He's saying all of these things without really knowing or caring that the term anti-Semitism isn't real. That that, again, was a made-up term by a Marxist in order to, at least two Marxists, in order to discredit anybody who criticizes someone if they happen to be Jewish or not. In particular, if they happen to be Jewish. I mean, that, that was the whole point. But Mark Levin uses the, uses the term so casually that he doesn't even understand the origin of the term. Because again, that would require Mark Levin to look inward and then understand history for what it really is. And he even, I mean, very casually and sort of in a comical way, he's attempting to be comical, but he says, okay, we get it. So you're saying the Jews run the bank and they run entertainment and they run the media and whatever else. And he, and he just rails all of this off and dismisses it. That's why you can't take somebody like him seriously, because he's not being objective about history. He's not being objective about words, their definitions, and evil propaganda. He's a pusher of it. That, that's really about it. You know, uh, the guy who was big on Fox News when I was in college was Bill O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly had the, you know, the number one time slot on Fox News. And if you were in college when I was, I mean, that was during the Iraq War. That was during 9-11. That was all of that stuff. I mean, people watched Bill O'Reilly, myself included, and he was a full-blown propagandist. He would shut people down on his show just for having an alternative thought. Then, of course, he did his entire spree of books, that killing series, killing the SS and uh, killing Kennedy and killing Patton and blah, blah, blah. It's all, they're all works of fiction. Every single book is a lie. None of it's real. He may even call them novels. I mean, I, I don't even know if he's attempting to be historically accurate or not, but he's not even coming close. I'll give you another example, too. Again, this is evil propaganda, but it, it's bumping right up against an individual's short-sightedness and just myopic point of view on the actual truth. It's another radio host. Uh, he's on WMAL in the mornings from 9 to noon, and his name is Chris Plant. I've brought him up on the show before, because Chris Plant, again, he's kind of a funny guy, but he's older, and he gets a lot of things wrong. A lot of things just dead wrong. His analysis isn't very good. He's not really in, in analyzing anything. He's not diving into real history of any kind. 
And he will quite literally say Lee Harvey Oswald over and over and over again. He'll just say his name. He'll go, well, you know, like Lee Harvey Oswald, just like Lee Harvey Oswald, Lee Harvey Oswald, Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, he'll go, oh my gosh, Lee Harvey Oswald. He'll just say it because he figures if he just keeps saying it, it's going to continue to justify his point of view that he believes that Lee Harvey Oswald killed Kennedy. Again, <laughs> any, it's hilarious. Any historian or anyone with a brain who looks into it will come to the very quick conclusion that Lee Harvey Oswald did nothing. He didn't pull a trigger. He didn't even probably pick up a gun that day. He didn't, he didn't do anything. He wasn't even involved. But that's the problem. I mean, that right there is the problem with evil propaganda and some of the people who have the largest voices in media and in television and in book writing and in publishing. If you tell the truth, historically, currently, and you can analyze both back and forth to the best of your ability while continuing to learn, you're never going to have a huge platform. You're never going to sell millions of books. I mean, that's, that's just not how the system is designed because the system is designed to control thought. It is a propaganda prison. But fortunately, there are gleams of good propaganda that make their way through. So I just wanted to mention that kind of just as a quick follow-up. Again, words and definitions matter, and I always recommend looking up the old, original definitions of these words and what they actually mean. And it doesn't take very long before you can connect the dots very clearly to see what's really taking place here and what has been taking place the entire time that we've been alive, and then well over a century, if not way longer than that, of course. So there you go. Uh, you know, along those same lines, and, and yet on a slightly different topic, it was nice to finally see Tucker Carlson come out with some of these J uh, January 6th tapes, which of course are blowing up the evil propaganda. I mean, it's, uh, it's crushing the evil propaganda. And that's a, you know, that's a good thing. I bet there's way worse stuff than what we've been shown thus far. And he said again that Monday and Tuesday were going to be the only days that he shows footage or something like that. Or at least, you know, at, at this particular dripping of information, so to speak. But there's way more information on those tapes that, that destroy fake and, and evil propaganda more than we can possibly imagine. It'll be interesting to see how much of that footage really comes out in time, because as of now, it's only been really just a few minutes worth of tape. And they have, what, 40-some-odd hours at least? Or I think it's even much longer than that. I've heard, you know, 46,000 hours of footage or I don't know, some ridiculous number. But either way, it's going to be interesting to see when that footage continues to come out and, uh, and how much of it is actually going to be shown to us. But yeah, it's backing, it's backing the propagandists into a corner and it's backing all of the people who were believing all of these falsehoods for a very long time into a really, really nasty and uncomfortable corner. So with that said, I, uh, I would like to move on to this very quickly. This was kind of making the rounds, too, on the old interwebs, and there's, an, there's just another angle into this particular story that I want to propose, because it's, it's an angle that many have discussed and theorized about, and I, I tend to believe it. Um, 
first of all, you're probably familiar with uh, Gonzalo Lira. He's an American who lives in Ukraine or certainly has a, a place in Ukraine. And he provides videos and updates as to what's going on in Ukraine, along with some other geopolitical issues as well. Um, in one of his last videos from, gosh, it was 13 days ago, as a matter of fact. Uh, let's see. He, he basically, it, well, his particular video is titled, China, De China Declares War on the United States. And he goes over this document, at least the introduction and then the conclusion of a document from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the People's Republic of China. And it's titled, uh, U.S. Homogeny and Its Perils. And there's five points to its introduction regarding, again, political, military, economic, technological, and cultural. And it basically describes how the United States is crumbling and people around the world see the United States crumbling. His conclusion that he mentions at the end, which is an interesting one, but he basically says that China has declared war basically on the United States. He's basically telling every country that the United States can be invaded, potentially should be invaded, because they are the weakest that they've ever been. The angle he does not mention is that when Donald Trump was in office, he allied himself very closely with Xi Jinping of China and, of course, Vladimir Putin of Russia. That these are really the three largest world powers that exist in the United States. Europe is fractured like nobody's business because of the European Union. And then you have the South American countries, which tend to operate, I believe, very independently for the most part. Although, I think we've, we, we've certainly pulled them in as being a potential ally, as far as the White Hats are concerned, in certain operations. With that said, the angle that he doesn't discuss is, is that it's quite possible that we are using Chinese intelligence and blackmail along with Russian intelligence and blackmail, to set up American politicians who have been bought, sold, blackmailed, and created endless crime, both, again, to line their own pockets and then, of course, hurt countless other people, that were using all of that information, all of that intelligence, whatever you want to call it, against American politicians, judges, you name it. And that in the future, these individuals are going to be the ones who are brought down. That we aren't really going to be invaded by China. That we're not really going to be, you know, invaded by Russia. And that, uh, you know, that there's not going to be like a Red Dawn situation where we're sitting in math class and then all of a sudden machine gun fire starts shooting through the windows and we have to run for our car to escape because we're being uh, invaded from the air by a foreign by a foreign country. I, I don't see that happening. Yes, we're being invaded in different ways, monetarily, of course, the southern border, you name it. But as far as a military invasion that Lyra was describing, I, I don't think that that's likely. I think that this document was certainly created on purpose to scare American politicians, and certainly the ones who were blackmailed, because in the document, again, it describes how degenerate the United States has become politically, militarily, economically, technologically, and culturally. 
And they're not wrong. They're not wrong. But what the Chinese understand, just like the Russians understand, is that it's not our fault. It isn't us. It's not we the people. We the people aren't the problem. The problem are the politicians. They're the problem. And these governments know that. They know that the hardworking families that exist in our country are no different than the hardworking families that exist in their country. We are victims of a corrupt society. So, you know, every country's got their own deep state. And that's what people, I think, need to continue to understand. And it, it, would, it would be foolish, I think, for countries who are interested in peace and prosperity to not work together. It would be a huge mistake for them to not work together to get rid of these kinds of deep state players within our own governments. I mean, who's to say we haven't helped Russia root out their deep state? Who's to say we haven't helped uh, China do the exact same? So I, I just don't think we're going to be invaded from the sky by the Chinese. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think what's more likely to occur is that in 2024, and this too has been brought up by numerous people, so I'm not the only one saying this, but in 2024, not only will Donald Trump win an election, but any election rigging that takes place is going to be operated, or I should say overcome, by white hats the same way that it was when he beat Hillary Clinton. Because in, two, in 2016, of course, they knew that, as I've brought up on this show, that Hillary Clinton was set to win. That's why they were saying she has a 96% chance of winning. Well, that's increased to 98% now. She has a 98% chance of winning. Donald Trump has a 2% chance. And then, of course, we know what happened. You know, she, she didn't win. But they knew that they, you know, the, the White Hats knew that she was cheating and that they were going to cheat. The voter turnout overwhelmed the cheating. But the White Hats knew that they weren't going to let her win no matter what anyway. That if they had to turn on their own systems and their own, their own record keeping, or they had to get to a particular person to make sure that Donald Trump, in fact, won that election, then they were going to do that because they didn't want her in place. So my point is, my, my summary point is, is that Donald Trump's going to win in 2024. And when he does, if they don't, of course, they're going to try things. They're going to try to steal it in a primary and they're going to try to do a lot of other things, but he'll still win. And when he does, that's when I think we're going to see the hammer fall on a lot of these people because you have to take into account all of the intelligence information that's been gathered over the last couple of years here since Joe Biden's been playing president of the United States. It's a ton of information. And all the backdoor deals that are getting made and a thousand other things, I mean, it's just one crime after another. You're talking about the RICO statute on steroids. For all of these people, you're talking about national and international crimes. And yes, there's always good, you know, there's always good people working within these agencies and there's always bad people working within, within uh, these agencies and they're always fighting each other, killing each other off and trying to advance their own ideologies and their own, uh, their own missions. But my point is, is that it's far more likely, I think, that, that these government agencies and the good people who work within are interested in destroying as many people as they can 
uh, and catching them in their acts so that they can pull their card at a time when it's when it's fit to pull their card. And when that happens, then it's game over and the dominoes fall. And that's when people start to lose their minds because they can't believe who's being arrested and why and a thousand other things. But yeah, that's my ramble on that. I just wanted to mention that very quickly, uh, even though I took a little longer than I wanted to on that. But yeah, there's a lot there. There's an awful lot there. Okay, let me play the, a little bit of this, uh, just a just a taste anyway. On to education related things. Last week, Merrick Garland testified in front of the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, I'm sorry, Senate Judiciary Committee. My apologies. And one of the only individuals to ask him about the memo. The DOJ school board memo, as it's called, was Senator John Kennedy. Now, again, big picture here. I think that these hearings can highlight the liars and, you know, the other individuals who have a role to play. I think, again, they're all politicians, so I really don't care about any of them. Uh, they're all either going to play softball or they're going to be polite when they don't have to be or, or whatever it may be. But um, Merrick Garland is is a liar. There's no doubt about it. And watching him in this seat and squirm around and deny constantly is is a funny thing to watch. Because again, normally he's a judge, and at least he used to be, and he would be in a position where, of course, he would have to just tell people what to do and they would have to listen to him. Well, it's not that way now. Now he has to sit there and have senators tell him particular things and ask him particular questions. And again, he just looks like a kid who's been caught. Um, he, of course, denies any wrongdoing regarding any DOJ memo that was sent to the FBI regarding violent individuals uh, during school board meetings. But there was a claim again. I, I think the larger picture is this before I just play a taste of this audio, which again, it's nine minutes long, and he basically just denies throughout the entire thing. But He's claiming that the memo that was sent had nothing to do with individuals speaking at school board meetings, that it had to do with individuals who felt that their lives were being threatened, something along those lines. And then he, again, sort of downplays that and, and whatever else. What he knows, which he's not saying, and what everybody else knows, which isn't even being brought up, which is too bad because it seems rather obvious to me, is that in the game of memo spreading or emailing, in particular, at that high of a level regarding the Department of Justice working with the FBI to, again, go after local areas or local individuals, if a sheriff's department receives that memo, which you know they did, the most radical sheriff's departments would be the ones to show up at school board meetings because all that would have to happen is a school board president or a radical school board would have to simply call up the sheriff's department and say, we need security outside of our board meeting today or tonight because we feel that our lives are being threatened. That's it. That's all that has to happen in order to militarize, so to speak, a school board meeting. Now, lots of school boards did that. Uh, some in Arizona come to mind. 
Scottsdale, if I'm not mistaken. You know, some of the more radical left-wing school boards certainly did this. And they would keep parents out of school board meetings. Parents would show up. They'd be standing around in the parking lot. They'd be waiting to go in. And then the sheriff's deputies were all standing there, and they wouldn't let them in. And then they'd, of course, ask the police why, and they'd say, if you don't leave now, you're trespassing because you're creating a disturbance and blah, blah, blah. You know, that right there is what a memo from the DOJ being sent to the FBI can do at the local level. Everybody can deny it, back up the chain all they want, but they know that it has a ripple effect that's going to lead to a, a parent wanting to ask questions at a school board meeting about a particular issue and then having that individual ultimately be arrested for, again, disorderly conduct or trespass or whatever it is. And we saw that happen. I mean, that happened. There would be sheriff's deputies that would arrest parents because they were wanting to get into a, into a board meeting. They weren't being violent. They weren't threatening to kill anybody, but it didn't matter. If the board, if the board members, school board members, just said that they felt threatened, then that was enough. That was enough to, to create the kind of action uh, that, you know, that Merrick Garland and the FBI certainly wanted. Now, what is that? What's the definition of that? I said the word at the very beginning of this episode. It's Bolshevism. That's Bolshevism. It's a way, it's a way, it's one of many, but it's a way to create a message that if you go up against government, we are going, government will push back. That we can, we can step things up violently too as a government and push back against the people, thereby sending a message of fear that you won't want to come back to one of these school board meetings and you won't want to say certain things in school board meetings and you may, again, not even want to show up at a school board meeting ever again. It's a fear tactic. And it worked. It worked. In many cases, parents stopped showing up because they were like, whatever, I don't want to end up on an FBI watch list. Or they'd say, whatever, I don't want to, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get arrested for wanting to ask a question. It was a Bolshevik tactic, and it worked because these people are Bolsheviks. It's that simple. They all went to school on it. They all know exactly what they're doing. It's not an accident. So I just want to play a few minutes of this clip so you can just hear the sound of his voice as he's being asked some of these questions because it's just nine minutes of straight denial. Here's some of that audio in three, two, one. Here's what I'm, I've always been confused about. Didn't you understand the chilling effect that it would have to parents when you issued uh, your directive, when you directed your criminal divisions and your counterterrorism divisions to, um, to investigate parents? who are angry at school boards and administrators during COVID? Senator, if you just give me a moment to put full context, I did not do that. I did not issue any memorandum directing the investigation of parents who are concerned about their children. Quite to the contrary, the memorandum that you're talking about says at the very beginning of the memorandum, that vigorous public debate is protected by the First Amendment. And the kind of concerns that you're talking about, are, uh, as expressed by parents, are, of course, completely protected. 
The memorandum was aimed at violence and threats of violence against a whole host of school personnel. It was not aimed at parents making complaints to their school board. And it, it came in the context of a whole series of other kinds of violent threats uh, and violence against other public well, well, officials. Let's walk through this. Um, your directive to your criminal division and your counterterrorism division came in a response to a letter from the National School Boards Association, did it not? In part to the letter and in part to news reports of violence. And, and, and the, the National School Board Association um, said these parents ought to be investigated under the Patriot Act as potential domestic terrorists. And you'll notice, Senator, that I said nothing like that. I understand, that but that's mind. what the letter said. There, there was a reference to that in the letter, right. something I disagree with. And your employees helped them write the letter, didn't they? I don't know anything to suggest that that's true. Uh, no, I think I don't. it is true. Well, and the White House helped them write that letter, didn't they? I, I, I don't know. I have no knowledge about that, but certainly I don't know anything about my employees and so, helping write that letter. So you get this letter from the National School Board Association asking you to investigate parents that your employees helped write and that the White House helped write, and you issue a directive to your criminal division and to your counterintelligence or counterterrorism division to start investigating parents who are angry. What did you think was going to happen? Say again, Senator, that I want nothing in my memorandum says to investigate parents who are angry. Quite the opposite. It says that the First Amendment protects that kind of vigorous debate. The only thing we wanted was for an assessment to be made out in the field about whether federal assistance was needed to prevent violence and threats of violence. Well, one of your field, that's not the way your, your, your department implemented your directive. One of your field offices actually opened an investigation. You set up a, a website and a hotline to report parents. And yeah, they, I, I don't think we didn't set up a specific hotline about this. This was a, a reference state to the Democratic FBI's Party hotline. official contacted you. They said uh, that some Republicans were inciting violence by expressing public displeasure with school districts' vaccine mandates. And one of your field offices opened an investigation, which is a permanent part of their record. I, uh, Senator, I, I don't know anything about the specific thing that you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, used really to say, they used to say in high school this is going to be on your permanent record. I don't believe there is any such thing um, uh, with respect oh, to, the, I think to this. there is at the FBI general, and oh. you and I both know there is. There, there was a lady and in, in, um, a mom in Michigan. She has a special needs kid, and the kid was doing pretty well. And she got upset with her local school board over its closures and and uh, virtual learning policies, and she went to the meeting, and and she made an intemperate comment. She 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 accused them of being a bunch of Nazis. Um, why would the FBI open an investigation of her? And I don't know anything about the specifics of the case, but accusing people of being Nazis, while well, I find bad, 
certainly not criminal. It's totally protected no. by the First Amendment. I mean, I and I've said that over and over again. This is not the first time we've discussed not, this. That's not what your department did. Well, I, 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 this is about the third time I've been asked to say about the same memorandum. And each time I've said, and I hope that the senators would go ahead and advise their constituents in the same way, that this is not what we do. We are not in any way trying to interfere with parents making complaints about the education of their children. But don't you understand, General, and and, and, and I I, I believe you, but don't you understand that this looks like you were just giving in to the teachers' unions and politicizing the disagreement, the honest disagreements? I mean, we only, as a result of some of our school board policies, we only experienced the largest learning loss for our kids in modern history. Don't you think parents had a right to be upset? Absolutely. Instead of what is a, I mean, you you implemented what's a threat tag? Uh, I didn't implement the threat tag. What you're talking about there is a, a part of uh, internal FBI operations. Yeah. So, you, as far as I, I can, you directed your folks though to open. Threat tags on these parents I, I and, and and investigate them. Yeah, I did not uh, uh, direct that. My understanding from testimony by the FBI is that when somebody makes a complaint and it involves, uh, a, 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 if somebody uh, gives a tip that a, a school official is being threatened, then there's uh, in order to uh, uh, look at trends. They mark it as a as a uh, uh, tip involving a school official. They make the, have the same set of uh, threat tags with respect to a complaint that suggests somebody is making a threat against a Supreme Court justice. These aren't complaints. These are tips that of violence or threats of violence. A threat tag on a parent for being concerned at a school board meeting? It's not on the parent. It's not on whoever. It's on uh, to indicate that a threat was made against, or at least alleged that a threat was made against, a school board member or a school official or a teacher or a school. Some of these turned out to be bomb threats. Okay. Yikes. So I played the majority of it there. Um, there was, again, there's a lot there. Of course, the term Nazi, give me a break. You know, it's being thrown around again. People not knowing what the term means. Everybody thinks it means the same thing. It it doesn't. I've been over that before, even in this episode. There you go. But that's, you know, that's part of the propaganda. That's the way that it goes. Um, the hypocrisy is is incredible. Again, working directly with the National School Board Association to quiet parents to have hotlines, to send memos and emails, and then to have threat tags and threat assessments based on allegations. They didn't even need proof. All they had to do was just make something up and then enforce that falsehood, enforce a fictitious story with real law enforcement. All of that, ladies and gentlemen, is Bolshevism. All of it. This is—it's an old Soviet tactic. It's not a German National Socialist tactic. That's not it. It's a—it's a Soviet Union Marxist Bolshevik tactic. That's where it came from. That's where it originated, and it's still being used in our government all of the time, constantly. 
constantly. There's no way around it. That's what these organizations do. They work hand-in-hand with government. They work hand-in-hand with the people who fund politicians. Uh, You know, that's the way that it is. It's always been that way. And as long as people continue to pay into these systems and attend these systems, they should expect nothing less. The other thing, of course, too, which I mentioned before I played the audio, which, again, pretty much was proven right there in the in the audio clip is that, and even Kennedy knew it, and he said so, is he said, you knew this was going to get bad. I mean, I'm paraphrasing him, but he said, you knew how this would be interpreted. You knew what would happen here. And the answer is yes, they knew exactly what would happen. Because if you take something that isn't real, or you allow people who are deranged to make up a falsehood, and then you send out memos addressing these these allegations and these stories of of alleged violence real or not against elected officials or other school officials because of everything and all the child abuses that were going on and everything else all you have to do is send out that memo and that email and those individuals become empowered they all of a sudden feel like at the local level look what i can do look what i can do i have all this authority now i can call up the sheriff's department and have them show up and kick you out and blah 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 i can do all of that i can keep people from attending school board meetings and this that and the other that's when you started to see school boards back in the day you started to see school boards change their policies immediately they immediately started to to go from a free and open forum where all you had to do was show up to speak to where now you had to show up and you had to sign in you have to show your identification. You have to be a resident of the, of the actual town in order to speak at a local school board meeting. That, again, prompted the school boards to change their policies, to squash free speech as much as humanly possible, and then if a person shows up who says something that they don't like, they don't let them sign up on a sign-up sheet the very next time, and then they're not allowed to talk. And that's, that's how that goes. That, that weaponization is a Bolshevik tactic that was implemented across the entire United States. In one fell swoop, the American public, whether they see it or not, it happened. It doesn't stop it from happening whether they noticed it or not. But in one fell swoop, they got to see that the entire American K-12 education apparatus is Bolshevik. It's Bolshevism. Period. There, there's just no way around it. Um, another example as to how, again, th- how slippery this slope is, but how it's a, a purposeful slippery slope and certainly one based on evil propaganda. You know, it goes back to Uvalde and anything like Uvalde, Texas. Again, no one was killed in Uvalde, but that didn't matter. The media sold the story, people bought it. Newspapers and the media picked it up. They pushed it everywhere. So did politicians. And what happened? That immediately led to school board associations sending out emails. Those emails go to state departments of education. Those emails then filter down to local school board meetings. And then what do you end up having? You end up having a change in policy based on something that did not happen. That's Bolshevism. Again, we're going to make something up that's a violent event. We're going to tell people it happened. We're going to show chaos or the illusion of chaos. And then people will believe it. And then we will be able to change our policies based on 
all falsehoods that occurred that we manufactured from the start. Bolshevism. That's it. So Garland can say all he wants. He can say he had nothing to do with it. Uh, it would be very strange for the head of the Department of Justice to not know that the White House had feedback on that issue or that they were supporting it or making suggestions or whatever else. Again, it's the illusion of being, uh, you know, independent, I suppose. They are not independent. They are just different fingers on the same hand every single time. It's always been that way. You know, th that's not going to change until these three-letter agencies are destroyed. So there you go. Okay, moving on here. This comes from WND. This is an interesting one, not surprising. Uh, it is titled, Ivy League English Professor Stunned After Watching New Students Struggle with High School Work. Again, not new. <laughs> it's just, it's not new. It says, in a delicious twist of irony, the New Yorker magazine penned an essay on plummeting enrollment in the humanities, only to have a tucked away little nugget of information explain away, perhaps, a big chunk of it. The article titled, quote, The End of the English Major, was written by Nathan Heller and explored why exactly enrollment in humanities is in freefall at colleges around the country. I can answer this question. It's in freefall, very simply, because they don't teach English in high school. So if you don't teach English cursive and accurate literature in high school, let alone nonfiction in high school, why on earth would someone seek it out at the college level? Not to mention the thread that runs through everything, ladies and gentlemen, the jab. The jab, of course, is playing a massive role in this too, because it's not just the humanities that are seeing a drop in enrollment, it's every university is seeing a drop in enrollment. Sick people, dead people because they're jabbed, and then the third group, individuals who don't want to be jabbed, sick, or dead, and they've chosen to just not attend. This is a very real thing. It's happening. Uh, here's another one. This one actually was delicious. Th th this, one, this one is juicy. I'm going to read this whole thing. This was a story uh, from about a week ago, and it comes from vaccineimpact.com. But this has to do with CPS and the weaponization of CPS and how this, this particular mother's child was kidnapped on purpose because of a personal, uh, a personal beef. And then the relationships that existed within that caused uh, CPS to show up and take, take this mother's child. And then it ends nicely where the mother ends up winning a $3 million lawsuit as a result. It's titled the following, Colorado mom fights back against government tyrants who tried to kidnap her two-year-old son and wins a $3 million lawsuit. Okay, it's, it's a quick one, quick story. Here we go. Uh, this is from Brian Shilhavy, the editor of Health Impact News. It says, quote, in my over two decades as an independent publisher, I don't think there's been another story I have reported on that gives me more satisfaction than this one out of Aurora, Colorado. Danielle Jurinsky, if I'm saying that right, an Aurora City Councilwoman spoke out 
on a radio program and criticized the city's chief of police, Vanessa Wilson, back in January of 2022. The next day, police chief Wilson's lover, a child welfare social worker, a female, made an anonymous call to Child Protective Services falsely accusing Danielle Jarinski of sexually molesting her two-year-old son. When CPS ordered a case against Jarinski, the social worker who made the anonymous call, Robin Nasita, if I'm saying that right, or Nikita something, requested that she be given the case. So the person who made the claim was a social worker, worked for CPS, was sleeping with a, with a councilwoman, and, uh, and they, they, they teamed up to go after this, this woman who, again, spoke out against what the other council people were saying. Uh, it says her intent was apparently to take permanent custody of Danielle Jarinski's two-year-old son, but Jarinski was not intimidated. As she later stated, you picked a, fr- a fight with the wrong person. Jarinski found out that it was Robin Nasita who made the call and called her out publicly, which resulted in her resigning from her position. Nasita from resigning from her position. So she was later arrested on criminal felony charges, which allowed the local media to report on the story, bringing even more pressure to the story. Uh, continues, it says, being in the public spotlight now, other families came forward to report that Robin Nasita had taken similar actions against them. In fact, one of Nasita's reported MOs was to approach a mother under investigation with sexual advancements, and if the mother resisted, she ended up losing her children. So clearly, we're talking about a deranged, a deranged lesbian. Well, a bit redundant, but you get what I'm saying. Uh, It continues, it says, So what at first appeared to be just a political retaliation story blew up to a systemic problem within the county child welfare department, and soon a local attorney had over 40 families making complaints, 40 families making complaints in what was now, uh, or what now has become a class action lawsuit. Jarinsky did not stop there, however. While waiting for her criminal trial to begin, which is scheduled for later this year in 2023, she filed a $1 million defamation lawsuit against Nasita. And a few weeks ago, a judge ruled in her favor, awarding her $3 million in damages. I have compiled a short video from the local media reports and the traces of the history back into the case. It's a 14-minute long clip. I'm not going to play it, but there it is. Uh, Yeah, there you go. I mean, it's incredible. All you have to do, again, it's a Bolshevik tactic, but all you have to do is lie. Now, they got caught. They got caught lying and trying to have this this woman's child arrested based on a lie. But, uh, you know, in, in a lot of cases, they don't get caught. They, they have their child swiped from them because, again, a story is completely fabricated. And, uh, you know, for one reason or another, again, many of it has to do with child trafficking. Much of it has to do with child trafficking, just flat out kidnapping kids, and then they just disappear. And then they make the fake allegation stick no matter what. And uh, and then the kid is gone forever. Fortunately, that was not the case in in this particular situation. And uh, yeah, there you go. So good for them. The other gal, the Robin Nasita, will be in jail, and that's CPS for you, ladies and gentlemen, which actually brings me to this story. 
I thought this was a bit odd. Uh, I was listening to the radio the other day, and out of nowhere was a commercial begging for social workers to start applying to be social workers. And that if you're not a social worker, that local social working agencies need your help. So if you're interested in being a social worker, give us a call at blah, 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 blah. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. When was the last time you heard a radio commercial promoting social work and asking people to be social workers, even if they're not even qualified to be social workers? It's almost like they don't have enough social workers around anymore. Wonder why that is. Jab, jab, jab. Just a hunch. Just a hunch. So speaking of the jabs, I'd better mention this too. Uh, coming straight from California. This is, uh, this is an interesting little bill, and they've decided to call it one thing while, ironically enough, stuffing in something inside that causes cancer. Um, you can look this up on openstates.org. And uh, this is a California proposed bill that is uh, titled AB 659 and the assembly bill, apparently, and its title is the Cancer Prevention Act. Now, here's what is buried kind of right in the middle of it, in the abstract. It says this bill, the Cancer Prevention Act, would add human papillomavirus, HPV, to the above-described list of diseases for which immunization documentation is required. The bill would specifically prohibit the governing authority from unconditionally admitting or advancing any pupil to the 8th grade level for any private or public elementary or secondary school if the pupil has not been fully immunized against HPV. The bill would clarify the department's authority to adopt HPV-related regulations for grades below the 8th grade level. By creating new duties for school districts, the bill would impose a state-mandated local program, unquote. There's more to it than that, but it's all about HPV, and if you're a K-12 student in California, you cannot advance to the 8th grade unless you have had the HPV shots, which have been proven to kill people. Don't know what else I can say. California is destroying themselves with their own ideologies and they don't know it or they know it and they don't care. I'm not sure which. They're both, again, both, both of those paths lead to the exact same conclusion. That the American K-12 school system will cease to exist, certainly in California. I don't think that's a bad thing. The, the question just becomes, again, what replaces it? Because once they've wiped out everybody in the, in the brick-and-mortar K-12 system, they're going to come for homeschoolers. So, yeah, this is a direct threat to the children who attend American K-12 schools. HPV shots. In what they're calling the Cancer Prevention Act, HPV shots have caused cancer. In, in particular, in the reproductive organs of females. <laughs> These people, they're nuts. They're absolutely nuts. 
if they can't get the COVID shots mandated for every child to take, well, damn it, they're going to poison them, you know, poison them another way. That, that's all they're going to do. They're just going to keep trying, keep trying to kill them. That's the plan. All right. This too came out the other day too, of course. Uh, Daily Mail bombshell email shows Fauci commissioned a 2020 study that he then used to disprove COVID leaked from the Wuhan lab. Again, we, you know, I've been over a lot of those Fauci emails from the past, from years ago that were uh, that were leaked out with endless doctors saying, "Hey, Tony." Uh, you know, look over here, buddy. Uh, there's HIV in this, and all the properties that would characterize HIV, so to speak, even though HIV isn't real. But it's filled with poisons that permanently damage the DNA, and uh, yeah, and it's thereby going to give people AIDS. What do you think about this, Tony? And then he never responded. He's a criminal. I, you know, th- there's no other way around it. That's the understatement of the century. And and nothing leaks from a lab, ladies and gentlemen. It doesn't seep through uh, the drain pipes and then make its way into the local water system. This stuff is injected into people via flu shots and all other vaccinations. And then the more and more they get, the more and more sick they become. And the more they play with poison in a lab and then say that it's, oh, we have a new vaccine for a thing you'll never get that will prevent this you know, invisible thing that you'll never ever see or hear or whatever. Uh, we'll, we'll make sure that you take it because then you'll get sick and you'll swear to God that the vaccine is working. That you being ill after taking a vaccine means that it's working. There are no leaks. It's all intentional, always has been, will continue to be intentional. This is the way it goes. Here's something else that's intentional, and this, this has to be brought up too. Um, this is from Natural News. It's titled Collusion. Uh, Merck Big Pharma trying to kill off all generic ivermectin production because it's cutting into profits. I've brought this up before. It's continuously being uh, written about more and more, as a matter of fact, that all you have to do to wipe out cures for things is you go after the distributors and the manufacturers of said things. And then when you take them over, you just stop making the product that helps people. And then people end up getting sick again, or they end up not having the immediate cure. So, of course, they're doing this now with ivermectin and have been doing this for, uh, with ivermectin for quite some time, and they're not going to stop. This too, again, is a Bolshevik tactic. I, I can't, I'm going to put it in the title of the episode. I, I can't uh, emphasize that enough. It's Bolshevism. George Soros himself is a Bolshevik, and he himself and his goons have done this before. They have done particular moves like this and made moves like this uh, in the firearm industry. George Soros bought H&R firearms. In the United States. I want to say it was based out of Massachusetts. I might have that wrong, but I think it was Massachusetts, H&R Firearms. They don't exist anymore. He just, he, he bought them, he fired everybody, and then they stopped making guns, and then they stopped making anything, and then they ceased to exist. That's, that's what they do. That, again, is a Bolshevik tactic. If you can't buy them outright and then destroy them, 
then you smear them, you make fun of them, and you hit them with lawsuits that they can't pay back and, uh, you know, basically make allegations and claims that, you know, they're going to have a hard time defending in court or paying to defend in court and so on and so forth. And then they either just end up quitting because of pressure or selling their business off because of pressure, or you go after them like what's happening here. You, you specifically target the manufacturers and maybe they're even being offered money and then you destroy them from the inside out. That's a Bolshevik tactic and it's being done in the medical industry. And uh, yeah, you need to, you know, for, for cures, for cures for things. So certainly keep an eye out on that because that's not something that's going to go away. And you've heard me bring that up on the show here before, but I just wanted to mention that again. Uh, I briefly mentioned this too. Again, I know I'm running through a few things here, but I, I have some audio I want to get to very quickly here at the end regarding some some positive things, of course, on how to get aluminum out of the body. This is a video that was sent to me by a listener of the show. Thank you very much. You know who you are. And uh, yeah, and then I want to make one more mention too of another piece of audio that was very interesting too. But you heard me mention this with with Dr. McCutcheon. This was from Citizen News that tainted blood, that 80% of the blood supply is now contaminated with spike proteins from the mRNA jabs. Uh, and then it says blood banks accidentally admit. And it continues on and on and on. And apparently, uh, Montana is also trying to push forth a bill that, again, would keep the jabbed from donating blood. This is just another red pill, I think. It's just another red pill to show people, hey, look, there are legal documents being pushed, basically put forth in order to become law to keep people from donating vaccinated blood. You think it's vaccinated? It's not. It's toxic from the bioweapons. But this is, this is a thing. Why is it that state governments would be doing this, and yet you over here, the completely blue-pilled, dead-asleep person, don't think that this is a real thing? It can't get more real than lawyers and, and legislators creating law to keep people from donating their toxic jabbed COVID blood. It, it, doesn't get any, it doesn't get any more serious than that. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know what else I can add. I, you know, I, I sent that to uh, Kim Carter even, and she texted back and she goes, yes, every blood donation center is officially compromised. Any blood-related transfusion is compromised. Even a, a friend of mine sent me a video of a woman from Australia, and she was describing the death of her, of her elderly mother as a result of receiving two Pfizer jabs. And this woman's story is, is horrific. She was bleeding from every, everywhere. She was bleeding vaginally. She was bleeding from her nose. And... When they hooked her up to a blood transfusion machine, her blood was clotting the machine. The nurses were even saying, we've never seen this before. They had to take the machine apart, clean it out, and then attempt to use it again. And it didn't work. It just, it, her blood just kept clotting. She died, of course. Um, rest her soul, but there you go. This is happening constantly. It's undeniable. Absolutely undeniable. 
I just think that one of the best red pills that a person can can take, or at least throw in the direction of a person who is blue-pilled, is to simply say, you do understand that there's state legislation in the United States to keep people who are jabbed from donating blood. And then you look at them, and they, of course, will look confused. And you look back and you say, you know this is a thing, right? They'll look more confused. And then you say, well, why do you think that would be then? Why is it you think that they would go to all this trouble to keep the jabbed from donating blood? They wouldn't have an answer. They just, they wouldn't. There's also this red pill you could throw their way. This was from the Hal Turner radio show. Vaccine-induced AIDS. Military records 500% increase in HIV after COVID-19 vax. Huh. Weird. Why is it that the military has a 500% increase in HIV cases after the COVID-19 vax, you might ask someone? What answer are they going to provide? What's the look on their face going to be? These facts are undeniable. You know, um, it, it, as I said with Robin, it makes you wonder what college-age students are doing with their free time. It makes you wonder what they're, what they're spending their days actually doing. Because if they even got a taste of the truth, they would, they would thirst for it on a constant basis, like we all do. We all thirst for it, I hope we do anyway, on a constant basis, and that, of course, sets us apart from the rest. Speaking of that, then, it leads me to this audio clip, which was sent by a listener. This is on YouTube, Jonathan Mosley's YouTube page, and it is titled, How to Get Aluminum Out of the Body. Now, one of the things, of course, that's that's occurring on a constant basis are individuals now looking up exactly how to not just get some of the metals out of the body, but, but get everything else out of the body that is in relation to these COVID bioweapons. Because again, you can get rid of some of the spike proteins or reduce the spike proteins. I've been over those methods before. I'm sure you're aware of what they are. Um, there's a number of different ways. Detoxing baths are, are some of the ways. Natokinase, of course, is another. Ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine is another. Um, all of which you can acquire without a prescription. And again, if I haven't said it before, I'll say it again. You can acquire natokinase on the Life Extension website. So lifeextension.com in the search bar, type in natokinase, it'll pop up. And then scroll down a little bit and you'll see it basically three or four different jars of it. They all have different labels. One of them is kind of purplish, pinkish. It's white uh, with pink lettering, I think. That's the one that I have. Uh, but, but it's gone up in price, as you would expect, because of the, the need for it or the want for it, whatever it is. Um, anyway, that's been proven to, to eliminate spike proteins. The problem is, is what happens with trying to get the metal out of the body and the nanoparticles, the, self, the self-forming nanoparticles. That's really the bigger issue. And there's a number of people looking into this, of course, and and trying to research exactly how to do this. In the description below of this episode, I'm going to include an audio clip of Stu Peters talking with a female doctor about this very thing. And you'll hear her talking directly about how this is really the bigger issue. 
This is the issue now. The issue is, is what can we do to get the, to get the self-assembling nanoparticle metal out of the body permanently? She even references Mark Steele, who, of course, has been on this show discussing the weaponization of 5G and how it relates to the shots. She's listened to Mark Steele before. She knows the connections there. And, uh, and Mark, of course, knows what he's talking about. I, th I think that's beyond evident. But this particular guy in this video I'm going to play now, uh, his name is Dr. Chris Exley of Keeley University, if I'm saying that right. And he discusses in this snippet from a larger presentation how drinking mineral water high in silicon can bring down the aluminum levels in our bodies. And aluminum, of course, as it says here, is a neurotoxin when inhaled, ingested, absorbed, or injected. Primary sources of aluminum are from cooking, vaccines, industrial pollution, etc. So this is about four and a half minutes long. Give this a listen real quick. We published a paper which showed a very simple way to get aluminum out of human beings. If you give them a, 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 a mineral water, which is rich in silicon, rich in something called silicic acid, SiOH4, the biologically available form of silicon, they pee aluminium in their urine. You can titrate aluminium from your body with a silicon-rich mineral water. And in this case, we were able to show we could do so in people with Alzheimer's disease. We now have programs up and running for healthy volunteers, people in their 20s. We have a program up and running for Alzheimer's disease where we're extending the period of time over which they are taking the silicon-rich mineral water to around 13 weeks. And we're just starting a program for Parkinson's disease. Again, without, I'm not giving anything away by telling you that we are going to be and have already been successful in removing aluminium from all of these types of people by simply giving you something you can buy on the supermarket shelf. I'm going to break all protocol and tell you that the one water that worked incredibly well was a water called Volvic in the United Kingdom, made by a French company called Volvic, made by a French company called Danone. But I can't tell you that now because since Danone went into an agreement with us to work in this area, they then told me they no longer want to work with us. They no longer want to be associated with the possibility that aluminium, removal of aluminium might be an important thing. They will benefit from it at some point because they are one of the few companies that have a silicon-rich mineral water. The one that we work with as well is a company called Spritzer, who will be more than happy for me to mention them in, in Asia, in, uh, based in Malaysia. And their, their mineral water is even more effective than Volvic. It contains even more silicon. There are no downsides to silicon. Silicon is good. Silicic acid, SiOH4, is good. I haven't got time to tell you why, but believe you me, it is. And here's a quick snapshot. This is just one individual. All we really need to see, we've got excretion of silicon in the urine. That's the black. We've got excretion of aluminium and other metals in the urine. The aluminium is the red. Against time for, for an individual having drunk a silicon-rich mineral water. I think we can all see that the aluminium and the silicon come out together. 
We have this for about 25 healthy controls, males and females now. It's very difficult data to do sort of stats on, you're sure what you're going to do on single individual, you're going to try and put it all together because everybody's physiology is different. So we're working on that. So I'm just showing you one example. But we know that you drink acidic and rich mineral water, you pee aluminium. It's absolutely, I'm absolutely confident if you included acidic and rich, rich mineral water in your everyday diet, that most of us could get our aluminium contents down to as close to inverted commas normal as possible. Like many of you, I am contacted on a regular basis by people who have been adversely affected, sometimes by vaccination, but on other aluminium-related issues. I have been contacted by parents of girls who have taken the um, human papillomavirus um, um, vaccination, and they have said, is there anything we can do? Is it got anything to do with aluminium? I don't tell them it's got anything to do with aluminium. That's not my role. I am not a doctor. I would simply tell them, look, if there is anything to do with aluminium, try taking a silicon-rich mineral water. I tell them which one. I am increasingly getting emails back six months, a year later. They're telling me that their daughter is better. I'm not making this up. Their daughter is better. I say, well, it might have had something to do with that. It might just be something else that you're doing, but that's great news. So anecdotally, at least, we're getting good results here. He was showing a line graph in that presentation also, and, and what it showed was, and he was describing it, of course, but what it showed more clearly, because, of course, we can't see it, or you can't see it, but it showed that when individuals were drinking this mineral water that was high in silicon, it ended up of course, causing the individual to urinate, but then almost immediately the aluminum was leaving the body. And then as they were drinking it over the course of time, most of the aluminum was out of their body. So it was a, it was a quick expulsion of aluminum in the body, and then that continued over the course of time, but it was continuing with less and less aluminum leaving the body because there was less and less aluminum that was in the body to begin with, or any more, I should say. So there you go. That's certainly another method. I have a few other methods that are on my website, which I don't think I mentioned this in the last episode, but my website's changed a little bit. I've, I've created two separate tabs on my webpage. There's a medical documents section now and a government documents section. So two separate sections. There's a couple of detox methods and some detox papers that you can download that are on the medical section. Again, that has a lot to do with uh, getting a lot of the poisons out of our body and a variety of other things, but you can do your own homework on that. Look that up. I've mentioned one particular detox bath that I take that feels absolutely amazing. Um, I recommend it, but... Check the ingredients, of course, of the ingredients themselves and make sure that you're not actually putting some of these toxins back in your body by soaking in them or doing whatever it is you do. Uh, with that said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to leave it at that. Do check the description below and watch that interview with this doctor and, uh, and Stu Peters. It's very interesting, and I agree with her that the tip of the spear now is how is it that we get this metal? out of people's bodies who have taken these shots. 
Again, she openly states, look, we know how to reduce the spike proteins. We know exactly what, what people who have taken the shots should do regarding the spike proteins. That, that's, of course, assuming that they're awake and they know what they've done to themselves. But, um, you know, that's clearly, th those remedies exist is the point. But what is it that we do now to get the nanoparticle self-assembling metals out of, out of people's bodies who have taken these shots? Because, again, when the 5G gets ramped up, uh, they're going to be in dire straits. So there you go. With that said, ladies and gentlemen, again, check, check out that interview in the description below, and I'll catch you on Friday. Peace. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless.